Welcome back, warriors. Quainine DeLuise Pam Palmiter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties and land back, to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native peoples from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island, talk about the front lines of Indigenous resistance, resurgence, and revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. And today's podcast is with someone you all know. He's literally omnipresent. He's an award-winning journalist who, at least according to his Twitter, claims to be a big fan of fry bread. So stay tuned, all you fry bread lovers out there. This is going to be a great podcast. Welcome back to a new season of the Warrior Life podcast. You are in for such a phenomenal discussion today because we have the amazing and the one and only Duncan McHugh with us. You, Duncan is well known. He's an award-winning journalist and I can't even list all the awards he's won. He's been with CBC News for over two decades. Can you imagine? He's hosted CBC Radio 1's Cross Country Checkup. He's been a longstanding correspondent for CBC's The National, which is pretty huge, and, which is pretty cool, he's a journalist in residence at Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University. But he's done so much more, we wouldn't even be able to cover it if this was a five-hour podcast. So We'll let him talk about all of his projects, but welcome to the Warrior Life podcast, Duncan. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, neat, Pam. What a nice introduction. Holy, wow, you're just pumping up my tires, eh? <laughs> well, it's a fry bread. You had me at fry bread. Georgina Island and it's good to see you Pam I'm I'm, uh, I'm so happy that we can we can meet this way uh, even during the pandemic yeah I know I mean thank goodness for online for everything during the pandemic including education like we're both involved in hmm. and and I really really appreciate that you're actually taking the time to come on this podcast because so many people have said hey can you ever get Duncan McHugh and I was like I don't know if I can but I'm gonna try hard and try to persuade him I, I gotta tell you I think you're doing an awesome job with the podcast I mean this is one of the the most exciting things that's happened during the during the pandemic is the just the explosion of podcasts and I really think I mean you know the the having the 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 tools and the means of production now in our own hands and you just doing this on your own at home and getting out to so many people getting the stories out of warriors and and the people on the front lines and sharing knowledge um it's just so huge and so i'm i'm like huge applause to you i'm i work for the public broadcaster and of course we have lots of reach but i just i just love what you're doing with this podcast well, thank you. That means a lot because, you know, I've been struggling along trying to figure mm. out all of these software and hardware and everything else. But thank you because you're here. So I'm I'm just so excited. And I literally have a thousand questions for you. But before I launch into it, I'm wondering if you can tell us just a little bit 
you know, about yourself and your community, what's your community like? Because I've mm -hmm. never been there. So uh, I'm from Georgina Island. It's about an hour and a half north of uh, Toronto in an hour if, if there's no traffic. Uh, small island on Lake Simcoe, uh, probably about four or five hundred people, maybe six or seven hundred uh, at Christmas. And um, I grew up off reserve, so so lived in Peterborough, Ontario. My dad was a professor uh, at Trent University. And then when I was a teenager, we moved to James Bay, uh, northern Quebec, uh, lived in a Cree community there called Chisassabi. And uh, I'm not Cree, but but um, I, I, I learned an awful lot from the, the Cree folks. They were they were just so good to me. Uh, one family in particular, the Pachanos, adopted me sort of. And uh, and and so that was a big part of my upbringing as well, uh, it, it was was being living up there in the north. But but I am very much Anishinaabe. Oh, that's awesome. It's good to know because many of the people that come on this podcast, they may be living in a certain First Nation right now, but that's because of their partner or work or something, but they're mm. actually from a different First Nation or they moved around. And so, you know, as Native people, we always end up picking up the, the lingo and little bits of the language and some of the culture and things like mm. that. I think I must know all of the bad words in about four or five different native languages. They never teach you the good stuff. It's always the bad stuff that gets you in trouble. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've got this. I really want to know if it had always been your dream to be in journalism. And I'll tell you why. Because when I was a little girl, for some unknown reason, I always wanted to be a journalist. And I just talked about it all the time. And I mean, like little, little girl, like grade mm. two, three, four. So one Christmas, my brother bought me a tape recorder with one tape and enough batteries to just, I guess, record for a few days. And I went around acting like a journalist. And my news show is called PAM News. Okay. And I always thought, when I grow up, I'm going to do that. And all through junior high, I'm going to have... PAM news someday. So is this something that you always wanted to do when you were a kid or is this something that came along later? Okay. This is, this is where I'm going to show my age uh, because I actually did the same thing, but I didn't do, I didn't, I wasn't, didn't think I was going to be a news reporter. So I used to hit record on the tape recorder and record songs off of the radio and then, and then I would would introduce. I would pretend that I was a, a DJ, and I and I would be like yeah. introduce the songs in between and make these little kind of mixtapes. Uh, the kids probably don't even know what the hell a mixtape a tape yeah. is. <laughs> Good Lord. But anyway, yeah, no, I um, journalism. Uh, I always knew. Uh, I think I always knew I wanted to to be a writer of some kind. Pam, uh, I I wrote from. Uh, when I was a teenager, I used to write in my journal poetry and quotes from stories that I read and uh, things like song lyrics, all that kind of stuff. So I knew I wanted to be a writer. Journalism didn't happen for me until my first year of university. And when I showed up, I went to uh, the University of King's College in Halifax and I showed up um, and and the, the first month they you know, they had all the all the clubs and the teams and everything were, were all trying to recruit people. And they had the, the student newspaper had a desk. They said, Hey, how'd you like to write for the student newspaper? And uh, I thought, well, why not? And, and the first article I wrote, Pam, uh, was, <laughs> so I, I went to King's to study, uh, it was called the foundation year. And it was the study of 
uh, Western thought, the progression of Western thought with a heavy focus on philosophy. So a really, really fascinating program. Um, but almost all of the students, there were about a couple hundred students in, in this program, and almost all of them were white. All of the professors were white. As I, I, I cannot think of any non, non-white professors that we had. And so my first article uh, was about, uh, this is in the uh, early 90s, late 80s, uh, was about systemic racism at, at the University of King's College and, um, and about how this really valuable knowledge was, was not getting out to uh, BIPOC communities and BIPOC students. Um, and <laughs> it was funny, uh, the, I didn't choose the headline. They, they made a headline for me and, and the headline was very brief. It just said, King's whitewash. And, um, uh, and then I showed up the next day when this, after the, the paper was published and there were students sitting around uh, in the coffee shops and things talking about this article, um, reading it, talking about it. And, uh, and then a group of students approached me and they wanted to start a petition saying that, that we should start a petition, having people uh, say that, that Kings was, um, uh, that, that systemic racism was a problem at Kings that we wanted to be addressed. And so I said, sure, why not? And so we sat outside the, the dining hall and people were signing this petition and then they wanted to present the petition to the president. And so within the first month of my arrival at university, I'd written this article that all of a sudden had me sitting in front of the university president talking about systemic racism. Um, And I went, wow. Uh, You know, I recognized at that point the power of a byline, even in a student newspaper. Um, and, um, and I was hooked and, and, and that's how journalism started for me. And, and it's, it's always been, uh, a way to, to share stories, but also create change. Yeah. Well, and you know, I went to part of my university in Halifax too, and King's college mm-hmm. is like right there by Dalhousie university. So that's really, really cool. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, talking about that, your educational journey. So sometimes when I have people on here, they're lawyers. So their educational journey was always very focused on law, for example, or someone else was very focused on education because they became a teacher. Mm. But with you, you seem to have a combo education. And can you just mm. take us a little bit through that mixed education? Because you wouldn't necessarily put those two tracks together. Or did you always want to be a lawyer and then decided partway to be a journalist. Yeah, no. So I was, I was a, a bookish kid. As I said, I was a writer and I loved reading. Uh, and, and that can be a liability sometimes on the res, um, you know, being, be, be, the, being, um, being on the reserve and, and being a nerd, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh I hear you. <laughs> you know, it, 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 sometimes, sometimes we don't get treated the, the, the best. Uh, so when I got to university, the opportunity to, to just sit around and read books, great books, uh, that struck me as being an easy way to make a, make a living. So, so I, um, I took an English degree, uh, but this was also the early nineties, um, when, uh, Oka had happened, uh, when uh, the constitutional talks were going on, Section 35 was a big deal. I spent my summers working for the Union of Ontario Indians or Anishinaabek, um, and it bothered me that I could see that the chiefs were always turning to the lawyers at that time uh, in terms of developing policy. They knew what they wanted to do, but they always needed to turn to the lawyers and say, "Can we do this? You know, how do we do this?" And I was. Um, 
you know, I, I thought I, I need to understand the law. It was, it was quite clear to me that, that, you know, law had shaped who we are as, as indigenous peoples in this country, as status Indians in particular. And, um, and I, I needed to understand it better. I didn't get that, 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 uh, I didn't know under anything about the Indian Act. I didn't, I, I had some, I had our understanding of the treaties, but I didn't have the legal understanding of the treaties. And so all of these things, um, I, I just knew I, I needed to understand them better. And that's, that's why I, I headed, uh, on my law school journey, I headed out to British Columbia because, of course, UBC has had uh, this long-standing First Nations legal studies program, um, and uh, and and you know there were uh, twenty Indigenous students every year in law school at U at UBC, um, and so uh, that became a you know a formidable part of of my of my education for sure. I was never sure that I wanted to be a lawyer. I did get swept up in it a little bit. Um, but I didn't go to law school thinking I would become a lawyer. Uh, I did, I did like being in a courtroom and I liked, uh, the criminal work that I did. So I thought, I, I, I thought maybe I'd, I'd, uh, I'd play with law for a little bit, but, um, once I got my call to the bar, uh, the day after, uh, I ended up starting uh, at CBC as a reporter because I had freelanced all through law school. Uh, I had a, a decent resume for for a journalist, and and CBC decided to take a chance on me. That's phenomenal! Like literally, the day out of law school, I'm off to be a journalist. Yeah, it was it was after my after the I I did article, but but I got oh, my call to the bar, and I wasn't right. sure at that point. I mean, I was young, and and I, I wasn't yeah. sure if I was going to be a lawyer or a journalist. And I spent a good couple of months, uh, you know, debating uh, this kind of life choice. Um, and I spoke with a lot of lawyers, and many of them kind of told me, "I love you know the work is challenging, and I feel like I'm doing good work, but if I could do something else, I would." And the journalists that I, there weren't that many Indigenous journalists at that point. Um, and, and I just knew that, that there needed to be, uh, I was tired of, of watching the news and, and not seeing our stories or the only stories that would show up would be when we went to the blockades that, you know, that conflict, the, the, the Oka crisis shaped kind of the news coverage so much in the nineties. And so that would seem to be the only time that we could get on the news or if there were these immense tragedies. Uh, and, and so it was either pitiful Indians or warrior Indians that were the only uh, portraits that we ever saw of, of indigenous people on the news. And I, and, and again, I wanted to be part of that change. Well, that's, I mean, and you've been part of that change for so long now and. Mm. The oh my God. Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Relatively speaking, right. Of course you're going to be here for another 80 yeah. years. So we're all good. We're all yeah. good. But um, you must find that law, just having a basic knowledge of the law or the skills about how to do legal analysis or how to understand law, that's got to be an asset as a journalist, given that so many of the things that we're talking about in the news these days are bills or legislation, policy, treaty rights and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I think when I first started at the, the CBC newsroom, they thought I would become a court reporter uh, with that kind of background. But I actually had very little. I was a TV journalist and I and, and uh, TV is notoriously hard uh, for court reporters just because we don't have access to, to visuals. Um, but but here's the thing, Pam. I, I mean, I, you must also uh, shake your head. 
when you read uh, some of the news stories looking at indigenous rights in this country, because so few journalists do have a background in the the legal issues yeah. which have permeated you know the discussion of of indigenous policy and so when they're talking about child welfare uh when they're talking you know you name the 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 indigenous story that's in the news whether it's it's treaties or or uh, housing or you know all of this you, you need to have some basic understanding of the legal framework like mm -hmm. in my journalism courses with my journalism students i say you, you know you've got to understand the big 3 cases you know whether it's it's delgomuch sparrow and the haida case if you don't have a basic understanding of uh, Aboriginal title, Aboriginal rights, and and the duty of of consultation and accommodation. If you don't understand that as a journalist, then you really have no business writing about Indigenous issues because so many of of uh, uh, journalists frame this as, you know, the Canadian government giving uh, giving benefits to Indigenous people, but anyone who who has spent any time uh, understanding the law understands that completely differently you know you understand that within a rights framework and 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 journalists really have no business writing about indigenous issues if they don't at least have a basic understanding of the law in this country it's so great to hear journalists actually say that. Do you know how many mm. times I have been on a political media panel and yeah. talking about a new court case from the Supreme Court of Canada with journalists who don't have any legal background and can't talk about all of the previous cases and what it changes and what it doesn't, but they just make simple arguments. Like when I say, oh, look, this, this case is talking about free prior and informed consent. No, it's not. It's like, yeah, I can quote you the paragraph. No, it doesn't. And I'm like, oh, why am I paired with at least have a journalist who has read the cases or is interested in the law or can add something to it? Um, and obviously, it's not like that all the time. But that's very frustrating because that whole process is supposed to be educating or informing the public. How, yeah. how is that educational? Just if you respond like, no, it's not, it makes it look like I'm just making it up or something, despite the yeah. fact that I'm a lawyer. And I just, yeah. I, I, I agree with you, like, do it, write about it, but have the background. Yes. And, and I think, I think that's something, uh, you know, again, I, I see that because of my legal training, but, but it was, um, you know, so many Canadians would, would, uh, would benefit from from having those opportunities to to learn about the the the, the basis of of Canada's history being entrenched in in treaty rights, for example, in 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 large parts of of Indian country, um, you know, and then and then for those where there are no treaties, the the whole concept of of Aboriginal title, um, you know, Canadians just don't understand that, unfortunately, and 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 that's why the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said journalists have a responsibility yeah. to be part of reconciliation. They can't be arm's length from reconciliation. They have to be part of 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 reconciliation by sharing this history that that so many Canadians don't know in a popular in a digestible way um and and that's why it's so critical that that we give 
journalists a, a basic history lesson. And and I'm just saying a basic history lesson here. Like mm -hmm. I I don't think you need to be you know spend three years at law no. school no. to be writing about indigenous rights. But you should you should at least know uh, the the constitutional framework that we're that we're we're working within here. Yeah, definitely. And so when I think about that, you've been doing this for like we said. Uh, two decades of right, you know, uh, being called to the bar and then going to CBC. Yeah. I mean, you must have noticed all of that internally or externally once you're in media, some of the things that are working and some of the things that aren't working because I've seen a dramatic difference. Like yeah. pre Idle No More, yeah. ugh, very frustrating. I, uh, I don't. Well, I don't know. More was a big was a big turning point. It was it was a, for the for the media in this country. Um, it was you know, <laughs> the there the the way that that our people uh, engaged on social media with the mainstream media. Uh, that I really see that as as a turning point. Um, yeah. Calling out stories um, that were were done improperly. Um, Asking for representation, all of the panels. I mean, they can't just keep going back to Pampometer for <laughs> the panels on the national and power and politics. There's got to be, uh, you know, more representation of Indigenous viewpoints. If there are representation of Indigenous viewpoints at all, often you would see all white panels, uh, political pundits, talking about the Indigenous issues in the news. And that changed in Idle No More. We started to see our, our grassroots people calling out the media representation. Um, and then also, I mean, it, that, that progressed to, to the point where uh, you know, you got to Standing Rock where people say, we don't even need the news media. <laughs> you know, we have our Facebook live streams. Uh, we have our YouTube channels. We have, uh, you know, um, the, the, the aerial footage that we, that we shot ourselves. We don't, we don't even need you guys. Uh, and that's when, you know, things really began to shift. And, and likewise with MMIW, I mean, of course, uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women. This this was a crisis uh, long before the, the you know 2015 2016, mm -hmm. but the mainstream media just wasn't paying any attention. But because of the the kind of vocalization that we saw on social media uh, from our grassroots people about this crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women, we began to see the me the media taking notice, right? They, they were they were like oh this is where the stories are and more people it, it became easier to find people who would speak mm -hmm. about these things and so I I really I agree with you there has been a, a a real shift we're not we're not nearly as far as we need to be in terms of representation either of the number of indigenous journalists or the the amount of stories and and particularly we've got a long work way to go in terms of the quality of the story coverage but but it, there's a huge shift since mm -hmm. since I started in in uh, in the late '90s. Yeah, I mean, and your point about you know obviously I don't know more. They were desperate to talk to people, so they were talking to everybody and from all kinds of backgrounds. And mm -hmm. you've got this really diversity of voices, and some of them they found that to be a conundrum. They mm -hmm. wanted a leader. They mm -hmm. wanted one singular spokesperson. They wanted you know, who is it that's organizing all of this? And it was, you're going to have to talk to the granny and you're going to have yeah. to talk to the youth and you're going to have to yeah. talk to the people on the front lines because we're all doing our own thing here. It's an organic movement. And yeah. then add to that social media. 
where social media has instantaneous news. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was something different before you had to wait until, I don't know, 11 o'clock to see what's happened and all of now it's like, oh, look, I'm, I'm literally watching it on mm -hmm. Facebook live and you're going to report on it some other time. And I don't know what you're going to report on, but I'm seeing it live for myself. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that's just, I think the two can go hand in hand very well and has gone hand in hand. At least they knew, well, who's talking and who's doing things and who, mm -hmm. who cares about all of this from social media. Like I think my first interview with aptn was because i had written a blog right mm -hmm. and i was on social media and it was circulating on social media not because i'd ever been in the media before but just you know because. one of the other really nice things though that i've seen in media coverage in the past even just two years pam is that because of social media i see the the types of stories starting to broaden and and so um, the, you know, I'm seeing more humor. Uh, I'm seeing more joy uh, in indig Indigenous news coverage now from from outlets like CBC, Indigenous, APTN, and others. Um, but but you know, beaded baby Yoda. I mean, that that's a thing in our community that's important to us and that we want to share with people, right? And 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 the media are starting to see that in our in our social media feeds and saying, hmm. Seems like that's a bit of a story, beaded baby Yoda, and and <laughs> yeah. you know, and and then um, that that kind, those kinds of stories, whether it's about our our sports uh, mm -hmm. or or our, you know, the 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 many kinds of things that that are important to us as Indigenous people, they're starting to make the mainstream news, and and that's giving a more a, a broader portrait of, of who we are. News is more than just, you know, uh, warriors and victims. And, and this is yeah, something that, yeah. that I've been talking about for a long time. That's what I love about social media. You know, a video goes viral and it's of a little baby who's two years old doing the chicken dance at a powwow. Yeah. It's got millions yeah. of views. You would never in a million years think that any television station would ever cover that. But because it's gone viral and it's everywhere and you can't avoid it on all your social media, then people are like, well, we better write a story about this. And and it's cool and it's sweet and it and it makes yeah. you, it's you see us in all of the ways that we are like it yeah. could be a fry bread competition it could be powwow or look at all of the online dancing during yeah. covid right we couldn't get together for our powwows so they did that and these things become stories and canadians are like oh look these are human beings with totally. wonderful things and cute things and funny things and i just think that's been such a blessing and i don't know that that would have come about even post i don't know more without the social media virality kind of things you know from tiktoks yeah. and vines and all of that yeah no I, I i agree with you i mean i think social media also has its evils for sure oh, yeah. Yeah. um and and you know again we see <laughs> uh you know in terms of lateral violence uh and media picking up on on some of the yeah. some of the negative things that that happen on social media without verifying them uh you know that that becomes problematic uh mm -hmm. and and in terms of the amount of time that people are spending on their screens that worries me as well <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but but again this 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 is uh, I, I I see a lot of positives uh, in terms of just us being able to broadcast literally our stories yeah. to the world and and finally finally legacy mainstream media organizations starting to pay attention. So 
So your journey at CBC is always Mm. going and evolving. So, you know, you're on the national, you're doing other Mm. great things at CBC. And then, you know, now that the world is transitioning into things like podcasts, now there's a CBC podcast, right? It's like, you better get on the bandwagon. And then here you come with this phenomenal podcast called Cooper Island Mm. on CBC podcast. Can you tell me how that came about and just tell the listeners if they haven't already listened to it, what it's about? Yeah. So Cooper Island uh, is an eight part podcast uh, about a residential school in British Columbia uh, that was on the island of Penelicut. Uh, It used to be known as Cooper Island. Uh, It's uh, d- just off the coast of Vancouver Island. It operated for nearly a hundred years. Um, and CBC approached me uh, not long uh, after the uh, announcement by the Tecumloops, uh, uh, Sequipma community, um, about the, the quote, discovery of uh, graves uh, or possible graves at the Kamloops Indian Residential School and said we would like a podcast uh, about residential schools, just period. That was that was kind of what they, what they asked for. Are you interested? And um, as I said, th- there were in in the, the, the days and months following, um, I mean, you remember, Pam, it was just, you know, community after community after community announcing that there were uh, also unmarked graves uh, at their former residential school sites. And Canadians, so many years of residential school coverage, uh, there, there was a reaction that I had not seen before from Canadians uh, to those very visceral images of, uh, you know, little, little tiny shoes, mm-hmm. uh, being being put at the grave sites and and there was an interest in hearing this history this wasn't news to to you and me uh or survivors uh or indigenous communities or anyone that had read the truth and reconciliation commission that that you know well over four thousand of our uh of our our children died at residential schools but it was news to a lot of canadians and so i've always seen uh you know take try to take those opportunities uh, to share that history when they're available. Um, and what I what I recognized was that a lot of people are getting their news and stories from podcasts now, and that there was very little uh, very little content uh, for those who 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 go to podcasts uh, ab- about residential schools period. Um, so I saw an opportunity, um, you know, Connie Walker, uh, my, my former colleague and, and good friend, uh, has done some great work uh, with her uh, Missing and Murdered podcasts and her Stolen podcasts, uh, looking at some of that that residential school history. But beyond that, there wasn't much else. Um, so Cooper Island uh, was uh, the work of, of uh, myself and my producer, Jody uh, Martinson and Martha Troyan, who's also Anishinaabe. Um, and and we wanted to uh, look into this issue of unmarked graves and how one community has has tried to deal with it. That's so important in terms of getting our stories out in our voices with the necessary context. E- even mm-hmm. if you do your best, you're not going to get that out in a two minute 
interview no. on the news. Like mm-hmm. it's literally no. impossible. But for people who yeah. want to know more they, and they can listen yeah. to a podcast whenever they want at their own leisure and get the context, get the real backstory from actual Indigenous voices. And I just think that that yeah. podcast was so, so, so important. And I'm so glad that you did it. And I hope you do more like on uh, yeah. like current issues that that people really need that context for, because I think it's there so were, important. There were two things that were really important to me, uh, Pam, when, when we did that. One was um, I really wanted uh, to... Uh, put a human face to to those those children. Um, it's it, the, the, there was so much focus on the numbers and 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 trying to, to and, and debate about the numbers and um, you know you can get bogged down in that. Uh, but but what I as you well know the reason why it was so raw for our people uh, it, it, after that announcement was it was it, it, like it it reopened the wound. The, the wound has has there's there may be a scar over the wound, but uh, and and in some cases the wound hasn't even healed. Um, but so I really hoped to try to put a face to, to some of those children. And, and we were very lucky to have, uh, three survivors, um, Belvi Breber and, uh, James and Tony Charlie, who were, were so open to, to sharing their journey and their, their healing journey, uh, with us. And, and also that, that enabled us to, to tell the story of one, uh, young boy who passed away, Richard Thomas, uh, at the mm-hmm. Cooper Island School, and just to show the devastating impacts that his death had on uh, on the Thomas family was was really important. I think to help help people understand and get beyond those numbers and recognize that those impacts are still rippling through our communities today. Right? This may have happened mm-hmm. fifty years ago, but it's still impacting people today. The other thing that was a really challenge, though, Pam, was um, we were, you know, all of our communities, all of our people, uh, whether survivors or whether they're intergenerational survivors, younger generations, um, were feeling incredibly raw. And and um, and so I really, uh, Martha and Jody and I really wanted to do our best to do this in a trauma-informed way. And having the length of a podcast, as you say, not doing it in a two-minute news story or a 1,000-word article, um, gave us the opportunity to to try to practice journalism in a good way, um, and and you know yes we wanted to get the stories uh, and 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 document them and and bear witness to to some of the pains that that survivors have experienced, um, but we also wanted to make sure that we didn't do any further harm, and and that was a that was a tricky balancing act I have to say. Um, as you know, as you know, when you start to get into this uh, this deep traumatic history, um, uh, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor. I'm I I, I don't have that training, um, and I and I often worry uh, by you know digging around. I, I worry about extractive journalism and and people that go into our communities. Um, with sometimes well-meaning, I, I, I'm not disparaging mm-hmm. journalists. I don't think they're all vultures, uh, but when they start asking uh, about difficult subject matter mm-hmm. uh, that can be very traumatic, uh, they leave. We all leave. Journalists leave, and we go off and do our stories. Um, and and not enough uh, people are taking the time to make sure 
that uh, that that the people that we've we've just spent a great deal of time uh, putting under the microscope, uh, how that's impacting them, and to make sure that they're doing okay. Well, I think that's important, and I'm glad that you've raised those issues. Things that journalists need to be aware of when reporting on Indigenous issues, because one of the things that I always found to be a valuable resource is this website that you created. And I think it's called mm. Reporting on Indigenous Communities. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So how yeah. did you how did you get that together? You know, so so we were talking about Idle No More, but long, long before Idle No More, I mean, uh, the CBC recognized, I, I can't count the number of meetings that I have been to over the years uh, of, of the CBC saying, how can we do a better job of covering Indigenous people? Uh, you know, it seemed like an endless kind of conversation that, and often the wheels were spinning. Um, but, um, oh gosh, well over a decade ago, uh, we were having uh, that kind of meeting and it, 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 it seemed uh, obvious to me that one of the reasons that uh, non our, our non-indigenous uh, colleagues at CBC were having a challenge when it came to to uh, to to being sent out to First Nations or or indigenous communities um, was that they just uh, didn't feel comfortable. They weren't. They they felt like fish out of water. They didn't have that history. I we talked about you know the 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 lack of education. Um, many of them recognized that they they weren't aware of the cultural protocols. They didn't have the the basic history of of uh, of, of our politics. Um, and so I, uh, I I got a, a fellowship at Stanford University for a year and decided to put together a, a guide. Being in Silicon Valley, I decided to put it out as a website, um, yeah. and um, uh, you know that was my first attempt at at, at assisting uh, working journalists with having some basic cultural competency, like like some just real basic cultural competency. We mm -hmm. expect our police officers, for example, will have some cultural competency for dealing with the communities that they have to deal with, the diverse ethnic communities. So we hope that they will understand what a kirpan is, for example, if they go uh, respond to a call uh, in the Indo community. We hope that they will have some basic understanding of uh, you know, cultural protocols when they come and knock on the doors uh, on, on our Indian reserve. Um, but likewise, journalists should do the same. Yeah, journalists aren't packing guns. They can't necessarily kill someone. But you know what? The damage that journalists can do by getting it wrong and not having some basic uh, cultural uh, understanding of the communities that they're reporting on, the damage can be immeasurable in terms of shaping public opinion, in terms of... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the the perception that we as Indigenous peoples and Indigenous youth in particular have of ourselves when we see ourselves misrepresented in the, in the media. So this is why, you know, I believe that that all journalists should have some kind of cultural competency in the, in the communities that they're serving. And that's what I was hoping the guide would 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 uh, offer. And and there's actually lots of resources. So for anyone who hasn't seen this website, go to the website because mm. if you have a specific question, you can click on the question and then yep. you get a bunch of information. And so it's very user-friendly. It's mm -hmm. 
it's a safe way. You know, some people don't want to ask questions. Some people don't want to, they don't know how to engage in that. So they can actually go and at least start their learning journey about what they're going to do, especially students. I, I'd say students would uh, benefit greatly from that. So I wrote it initially for working journalists and it's kind of, you know, it's, it's very plain language and a sense of humor, that kind of thing, because I know that, that journalists have dark, dark sense of humor and absolutely no time <laughs> to, to, to read anything. So, um, but as it turned out, students, uh, and professors ended up being kind of the biggest market for, for this site. I was just getting flooded with, with, uh, student requests every year. And so that's why, uh, it badly needed an update. I didn't, mm. you know, I kind of did it off the side of my desk, Pam, and, um, uh, went back to my business of, of being a reporter. Um, so this past, uh, year, uh, I, I worked on, on, updating it, uh, which it badly needed, uh, but decided to release it as a textbook. And so um, it, it's, yes, there, <laughs> there you got it. Uh, so uh, Oxford Press uh, is, is released it and it's called De Decolonizing Journalism. And um, much of the that original guide is in there, but there are updated parts about, you know, for example, trauma-informed reporting, uh, use of social media, um, and then also much of the original guide was kind of written from my personal experience as a journalist with what little had been written in academia about covering Indigenous communities. That's changed a lot in the past 10 years. Um, so there's more updates on things like uh, objectivity, for example, the debate over objectivity. Yeah. But also... Uh, I also had a chance in this textbook to sit down and talk with just some of the top Indigenous journalists uh, in Turtle Island. Uh, so Connie Walker, Tanya Talaga, uh, Mark Trahant, um, I'm, I'm going to blank on all their names, Walgijig Rice, Morelda Mer Fiddler, Fiddler Potter, um, Juanita Taylor, it just had some great, uh, Tim Fontaine, uh, of oh, course, yeah. of Walking Eagle News, um, <laughs> yeah, had yeah. Some, some excellent conversations with them to get their perspective on their journeys in newsrooms and what they thought reporters needed to know. Um, and that, to me, I learned so much from them uh, and, and people that have, have reviewed the, the text uh, just say, you know, this is a gold mine for not just journalists either. I mean, it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's very, I, I, I called it decolonizing journalism. My friend, Tristan atoned, uh, <laughs> called me out on that. He said, I don't know if journalism can decolonize. You know, I, why are you calling it decolonizing journalism? And and for those, you know, who are familiar with Franz Fanon, yeah, okay, the journalism isn't getting blown up mainstream. <laughs> that's not happening. Uh, but um, that said, I do think what, as I see how my Indigenous colleagues uh, are, are Practicing in a good way, according to our Indigenous teachings, um, I see the changes that they're bringing to journalism. Um, and those lessons are starting to percolate throughout the newsrooms as, as, our, as our people uh, become more senior and more vocal about, about the things that, that we see that are wrong with the industry um, and, and the ways that we can change for the better. Uh, exactly. And I have to tell everyone, I got this uh, maybe two or three days ago, and it has been impossible to put down because of the way it's written. I expected it just to be like a journalism textbook, mm. you know, like some of the other ones that you read, very mm. technical or on the professional <laughs> side of things. But you look at it, and at the very beginning, you've got context. 
just like, yes, thank you. Before you can even start talking about journalism with Indigenous peoples, how about a little context? And then my favorite part always mm. is talking to people and their advice and their struggles and things that they've gone through, like, you know, the, all of the people that you just mentioned. That really humanizes it. It really helps you understand more than in a technical sense. And then all, like the basics that people should know, like you've got in here, terminology, uh, positive versus negative mm -hmm. stories. You wouldn't think, you know, from an, in, I think most indigenous people know, have been criticizing the media for a long time, but you wouldn't think that something just so simple as that could have such a huge impact. So I would argue that in addition to Native people loving this and saying, hey, these are the things we've been saying forever about the media, mm -hmm. it is going to be a phenomenal resource for all of the non-Native journalists or, in fact, international journalists who pop into another country because Standing Rock is happening and they have no yeah. idea the call it, you know, the context, the politics, the culture, any of it, because they're even worse from being outside of the country. So this is going to be the best resource for decolonizing journalism for Native people. And not just so, that, I would, I so, would. So I, 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 yes. I'm going to, I'm going to put, so, so, so this one is by the side of my desk. This is Greg Young Ng's uh, Elements of Indigenous Style. And so you talked about, uh, you know, yeah, you got it too. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm so sorry that we lost Greg because, because, um, you know, this, this, uh, is such a, an important thing, but, yeah. but again, it, I, I do hope that, that my textbook, um, will also be helpful in the way that Greg's is in terms of, of emphasizing to writers, like, like not just journalists. Yeah. 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 It, it, my, my textbook is a journalism textbook, but it's about, a Greg's book is about relationships and the importance mm -hmm. of relationships and so is mine like and so i think people who are working with indigenous communities need to hear that message and get tips and and start to understand it and um and and i i like i say it's i i, I i'm i'm so happy that you're finding it helpful Oh my gosh, yes. And not even just in a journalism context, but I teach Native studies, you know, Indigenous sure. politics and Canadian politics and stuff. And this has that. This is like, yeah. because part of it is this relationship we have with Canada, whatever that is, it's impacted by the media. Like sometimes the, I, I would argue that the media is the one who decides what the relationship is, what is good, what is bad. They kind of direct the public in a way I don't I mean I don't know that they always intend to but if they're presenting say you know Wet'suwet'en protecting their water from a pipeline in a very negative way and then the public is just naturally going to absorb that and assume I, I, not all the public some are super critical thinkers but um so that's also important for how it gets portrayed, how we have these relationships, the politics of it, the internal politics. Like, so this is like, this is gold for more than just journalism. And I love hearing from people. Well, obviously, I have this podcast, so I just love talking to Native people. But to know that you talk mm -hmm. to other Native journalists, like I had Tim Fontaine on this podcast, and, you yep. know, because Walking Eagle is so funny. So but then he talked yep. about his whole experience <laughs> in journalism, and I didn't even know the backstory. So that in yeah. and of itself is value. 
And and when you sit and, and read the conversation that Tim and I had, I mean, some of it is about humor and using humor. Uh, but but uh, Tim has Tim Tim spent two decades himself in newsrooms yeah. of both APTN and CP, CBC, and has so much wisdom to share about uh, you know how to yeah. how to do a better job. Um, and and it, it was um, <laughs> again, he's he's uh, he's more than just a funny guy for sure. <laughs> No, still very funny though. I'm gonna have to get him back on. He here. is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Well, Duncan, you know, before I let you go, I always ask this of everyone who's on here: if you have any advice for those coming behind you, for those, you know, grade fourers or people in high school saying, you know what, maybe I want to go into journalism as a young native person, yeah. and. Do you have any advice for them other than everything that's in this book, which I think sometimes it's advice for other people? Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I, um, this is my old standby, uh, to this question, uh, Pam. Um, I think you will always, uh, be served well, uh, if you're interested in journalism to just write um, wh whether you want to be a print journalist uh, or not, uh, whether you want to be a podcaster or not, uh, you know, whether you have the gift of the gab uh, and, and don't think that you need to know how to write, um, we are in the communication business. And, um, you know, uh, I certainly appreciate those, uh, you know, the oral storytelling traditions and and those uh, traditional modes of, of of transmitting knowledge. But if you're going to be in the media business, you're going to need to learn how to write, um, and you're going to need to learn how to write well. Um, and so, if you if you want to uh, to succeed. Uh, the old, the best practice for for writing is to do it is to write uh, every day if you can uh, to to open yourself up to editing to to have people say hey this is working this isn't working um, and to rewriting and rewriting and rewriting again uh, you know I'm a big believer in shitty first drafts <laughs> I write a lot of them holy cow do i ever write a lot of them uh you know but that that sitting down and act of writing mm. is a way like when you're staring at that blank page and you know you have stories inside that you're just dying to tell the world but you're staring at that blank page and and saying oh my god how am i what am i and you and then you know the next day you're staring at that blank page and the <laughs> next day you're staring at that blank page that's a terrible terrible place to be yeah. but actually the act of writing is a way to try to break that log jam right mm -hmm. like like to try to just break open that well of ideas and those things that are in your heart yeah. sit down and just pound them out as fast as you can and it doesn't matter 99 of it may be garbage and and nobody needs to see it but the act of writing actually does something of, of bringing those stories out of you and and i encourage uh young people who are interested in the media business to, to write as often as as possible, um, and and that's a way of of sharing your stories. Now you can tell your stories. You know, I <laughs> there's this great. Uh, you know, I saw that TikTok is having an Indigenous boot camp right now, and I love the fact that that you know we've got so many Indigenous TikTokers out there, young people who are telling their stories that way. But again, uh, they're writing things down. You know, and and I think you you need to how to how to write in bullet points in ways that make people laugh and and make people angry, upset if it's something that upsets you. Um, 
that's that's my big uh, my big tip of the day is is just uh, write 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 and edit 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 edit. Yeah, I think that's great. Write, edit, and then don't take it personally when people do a whole bunch of edits or make a whole bunch of suggestions because honestly, that's how you learn. And I'm so yeah. thankful because then you're like, oh, he put this paragraph up here and he wanted it because. You got to do the key hook first and then you get into context, yes. you know, like those yeah. kinds of things, you know, you learn that from writing and engaging with people who will help you. Yeah. I just and you kind of, sometimes, sometimes younger people kind of, you know, they, they, they get their backs up when, yeah. when uh, profs or, or senior journalists or whatever offer those kinds of critiques. But I always kind of say, you got to learn the rules before you can break the rules. Um, you yeah. know, that's, that's, uh, that's, 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 uh, it's it's valuable to to figure out the way things are done, so then you can go bust a move and and do all the, the <laughs> bust cool a move. Stuff yeah, there. that's right. <laughs> that's yeah. good advice. Bust a move, everybody. <laughs> well, Duncan, you're just so awesome talking to you in person, as you are seeing you on TV and reading all of your content. And I can't thank you enough for coming on here because, like I said, people were saying you've got to get Duncan, you've got to get Duncan, and I see now why I had to get yeah. Duncan on this show. And uh, so I really appreciate it. You're a wealth of knowledge, and I'm going to learn lots from all of your content, too. Miigwech, uh, Pam. And thank you for the work that you do. Uh, it's like I said, it's uh, the, the people on the front lines uh, need a place to, to share their stories. Uh, mm -hmm. And the mainstream media don't always do that well. So thank you for doing your work. Well, thank you. And thank you to everyone who is listening or reading the closed captions or watching it on YouTube. However you get this podcast, thank you for always supporting the Warrior Life podcast. And don't forget, always support Indigenous content creators. It can yeah. be through financial support, but it doesn't have to be. It can be liking, subscribing, resharing, leaving comments and, and good ratings, because that way it triggers the algorithm and it gets to a lot more people than they would have in the beginning and that helps the message spread so thank you everyone for all of your support till next time keep living a warrior life walaliag